Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. We are going to be uh, finishing up our series called A Prayer for a New Year. We've been sitting in Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, kind of unpacking it phrase by phrase and talking about how it really is a great prayer for us. We're going to be going to page 976 in our Bibles. So if you're using one of our Bibles and one of the chairs around you, go ahead and just go to page 976. We're going to Ephesians chapter 1. I do want to remind you that this is our anniversary month. Uh, We turned six at the beginning of this month, and um, uh, we had a great worship night Friday night to help celebrate that. Thank you to everybody who who served and led Brian, who who, um, coordinated that. Um, uh, Thank you for that. And then next week, I want to remind you that we have kind of a unique service. Next week, we're having Heights at Trailhead. Heights was our first daughter church. We've sent out two church planters in our six years. Uh, Heights is a church in Collinsville, and, and uh, Corey Johnston um, was, was my resident, and we sent him out. And so he's bringing his whole church to worship here next week. Um, so I'm going to encourage you to show up early and sit in the front and sit in the middle because it may be a little crowded. Uh, but his worship team is going to be leading us in worship, and, and he's going to be leading us um, in the Word. And so uh, I encourage you, come on out next week for the celebration uh, as we continue to just celebrate what God has done. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. All right, so the heart of this prayer, this is what we've been unpacking, the heart of this prayer is this this request that that God would give us a fresh experience of his spirit in in such a way that the, the eyes of our hearts would be progressively enlightened to see what is real and valuable and glorious and true, right? Not just the eyes of our head, which see the shape of a thing, but the eyes of our hearts that assign value to a thing, that we would learn what is truly valuable, right? And, and we talked about how that requires us to have a realignment of our understanding of glory, right? He's praying to God, the Father of glory, the one from whom all glorious things flow, that we wouldn't compete with God for his glory, but we would learn to live in submission to and a celebration of His glory, right? We talked about how this means we need to have our eyes opened progressively to the hope that He has called us to, that we wouldn't be seduced by false hopes. We wouldn't be seduced by, by hopes that lead to dead ends and to, to unhappiness and unfulfillment, but that we would be lit up by the hope of His calling, that our eyes would be progressively enlightened to the beauty of community, that we would understand the, the glorious riches of His inheritance in the saints, that we wouldn't just see the church in, in all of its brokenness and its jacked upness and, and people doing stupid thingsness, right? That we would actually see a people of God 
in whom God has buried his glory. And that that glory in this people is working its way out, both to, to God's glory and to our good, that we would come to see the riches of community. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at power. The final request in this prayer is, is that God, this God of glory, would, would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see and know the surpassing nature of His power. You guys, power is something some of you crave and love, and some of you actually hate. Um, some of you know what it can do, and some of you have, have suffered the abuse of it. And, uh, but here's the thing, power is necessary. Without it, we can't do anything, right? We can't create. <clears throat> but that is harnessed power, right? When we harness power and control it and use it, we can do good things with it. That is controlled power. Uncontrolled raw power is dangerous, and we know this. Things get destroyed. The most powerful example that we have in this world of of Raw power simply being unleashed, at least in a man-made fashion, would be um, a nuclear bomb. In May 1945, uh, there was the first explosion of an atomic bomb. They really had no idea what it was going to do. They, they took it out into the desert of New Mexico and uh, set up uh, an early morning test. They, they had some projections of what, what would happen, and they detonated um, this bomb that at this point was... Um, simply called the gadget. <laughs> that was the name for it. They took the gadget out and, and they blew it up. Now, to measure its force, they had to figure out a way to measure what they were dealing with. And so what they did first is, is they first exploded 100 tons of dynamite. And then they measured the, the force of the impact from 100 tons of dynamite. And then when they, when they, when they exploded the gadget, they were able to, based on that calibration... Uh, discover that, that, that the gadget had around 20 kilotons or, or 20,000 tons of, of force relative to dynamite. So it would be a similar to 20,000 tons of dynamite. Of course, technology has grown and evolved since that first explosion. The bombs that were used in the war were atomic bombs. The bombs we have today are nuclear bombs. The first were, were fission bombs, now they're fusion bombs. I won't try to explain that, but, but here's what you need to know is, is the largest nuclear bombs today, the largest is uh, the Russia's Tsar bomb, um, measured 50 million tons of dynamite. It's 2,500 times more powerful than the original atomic bomb. So the code name, here's what's interesting. The code name for those first tests, when they went out to the desert of New Mexico and Oppenheimer took his creation and, and, and they, they exploded this thing out in the desert, the, the code name for this was Trinity, which was fascinating. Oppenheimer was later asked, why did you name this project Trinity? And he said that it came from the poetry of John Donne, where, where there's a, an opening of a poem that says, God, three in one, batter my heart. And he's like, I don't know why I named it Trinity. But that line struck me. I think it's interesting 
as they were trying to unpack the power of creation, they were in fact exploring the power of the Creator. They were, they were breaking apart bits of the creation in order to find out how much power could be unleashed just embedded in the creation itself. They were tinkering with what God created so that they might become a little bit more like God. Here's the thing, when, when man tries to act like God to unleash his power, only one thing happens. Destruction. Death. Now, we've been able to harness nuclear energy and, and, and uh, in some degree try to use it for good, but it is in its strongest forms still the most destructive force we have created on earth. And, and that story of man trying to become more and more powerful runs through human history. Mankind trying to take the place of God and unleashing death and destruction. See, Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, progressively enlightened, that we might come to see the power of God in a new way, a way that would free us from fear and ignite our hope, a way that would lead us not to destruction, but to life. All right, I want you to take a look how Paul prays uh, in this passage, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, and I'm going to put the verse on the screen because we're going to unpack pieces of it as we go through. That we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. I find that interesting that the way we measure power today in terms of, of tons of dynamite is in fact the same word that Paul is using to describe the, the power of God. So if we were to try to measure this great power of God, this dunamis of God, what would we find? We would find that it is uh, of immeasurable greatness. It is immeasurably great. The Greek word for um, surpassing hyperbole um, it just makes me laugh a little bit. When I was studying Greek, uh, you make these little, little things in your head that um, uh, help you with translation, right? Uh, and so, a bole sounds a lot like ball, and I always pictured this, and hyper means beyond. And so, with hyperbole surpassing, when the idea there is, is, is something could be thrown. Think about this afternoon when you're watching the football games, if there was a quarterback who could effortlessly throw the ball as far as he wanted, like as far as he wanted. Not just to the end of the end zone, but out of the, out of the stadium, beyond the stadium, into the ocean, beyond the ocean, maybe even into the orbit. Just throw it as far. It is immeasurably great. God's power can't be measured. In an attempt to communicate just how great this power is, Paul heaps up word after word after word to describe it. Take a look at this. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Paul is, with his rhetoric, trying to reinforce and drive home just how incredibly immeasurable this power is, this might, this magnitude, this strength. And he's heaping up words to describe it. So, just how great is this power? Take a look at the end of the verse. It says this, that it is the, the power, the, the great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in heavenly places. It is so great that it raised Jesus from the dead. You guys, when we show our power, things get destroyed. If we, if we try to experience, whether it is physically or through, through our ingenuity, the greatest experience of, of power we can demonstrate, we destroy something or we destroy ourselves in the process. What happens when God flexes his muscles? What happens when God simply pours out his power? Dead things come back to life. When God speaks, the deserts bloom and corpses breathe. See, the measure of God's power isn't in how much it can kill, but in its unleashed explosive ability to bring life. It is resurrection power. Now, to help us understand that, I I want us to go back and consider the beginning of the story, the the central problem that required God to break in with this new recreating act of power. In Genesis chapter 1 and 3, I'm just going to summarize. We're not going to flip over there, but in Genesis 1 through 3, you find where it all went wrong. And when you go back and and you read Genesis 1 through 3, it's an incredible story. I encourage you to go read it. You're going to read some crazy stuff. You're going to read about Adam and Eve, our first parents, and, and you're, going to talk, you're going to read about a, a talking snake, and, and, and I know it's crazy. But here's the thing. It's crazy insightful to the human condition. I find no better explanation for why the world is the way it is than in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We find in Genesis 3 specifically where mankind rebels against God a chapter of incredible insight into the suffering of mankind. People often ask, how can you have an all-powerful, loving God and yet have so much suffering in the world? How can you ever explain the, the brokenness that we see around us, everything from wars and genocide to class and gender struggle to, to um, natural disasters to seemingly happy and normal people destroying themselves? How do you explain the level of pain and suffering in the world? I think Genesis chapter 3 gives us an incredible insight. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation of, of the entire world. God speaks the world into existence. Again, the power of resurrection. He speaks into nothing and something exists. He, he speaks into that something and suddenly life is there. And at the end of that creation, he says, he looked at everything he created, and behold, it was good. Yes, it was very good. Theologians call this state a state of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. But it's a word that means a lot more than just a lack of conflict. It means the flourishing of life. It means life as it was created to be. It means means having desires that are properly aligned to the very things that feed the appetites. When there is shalom, there is the flourishing and the fullness, the peace and the health of life. And into that world of shalom, mankind dropped a bomb of rebellion. And the shockwaves of that event are still being felt today. As a result of, of that rebellion, death was introduced into the world. 
God said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Now, when you read the account, they, they didn't physically die that day, but they did introduce death into the created order. And in that day that they rebelled, they, they brought death into the world. Now, here's the thing. When something dies, it doesn't cease to exist. It simply gets separated from the source of life. When, when the physical body dies, you don't cease to exist. You are separated from your body. And in that day, when, when God said they would surely die, they, they didn't physically die, but they died spiritually. They were separated from God by their sin. They were separated from the source of life. Like a plant that is uprooted and left out to die. Our roots were ripped up that day from being vitally connected to the presence of the life-giving God. That evening, after they rebelled against God, God showed up in the garden. And as you read the account, you'll discover that Adam and Eve hid themselves in the bushes. God's holiness, which used to be a source of life and warmth to them, was now a threat to them. They were no longer holy, and the, the warmth of God's holiness now became a fire they could no longer endure because impurity cannot extend the being in the presence of absolute holiness. They hid themselves from God. So we see that they lost shalom. They lost the experience of shalom with the, the presence of God, the, the giver of life, the one that, that He had created them to feed on His presence. And now his presence was not inviting, but threatening. They had a loss of shalom in their first and most important relationship between them and their creator. They then covered themselves with leaves. <laughs> Part of the funny aspect of the story. Now here's the thing. They did this not because physical nakedness is evil. It wasn't that suddenly they looked around and went, oh, hey, we're naked. That's a bad thing. See, what we see here is the very first emergence of shame. Mankind's first experience of knowing we have something to hide. In this moment, they lost shalom with themselves. And in that moment, they suddenly experienced the conflict that we all know and experience daily. You know that little critic's voice that's in the back of your head? The one that is constantly telling you that you're not good enough? You're not smart enough? You're not pretty enough? You're not loved enough? The one that, that is constantly either puffing you up in pride and making you feel superior to everyone around you or, or filling you with shame and making you feel like you don't measure up and, and, and can't stand the, the experience of standing with others. That, that voice that is constantly attacking you and undermining you, it was born in that moment. When they lost shalom with themselves, they suddenly were no longer at peace with themselves. They became their own enemies. And in that moment, we had the birth of, of every form of self-condemnation and every form of self-justification where we're trying to hide our weaknesses behind our presumed strengths and every form of, of mental torture because of the loss of shalom between humans and themselves. And then God explained to Eve that there would be 
consequences for her and her family as a result of their rebellion. And he said to her, you, you will now have conflict in your marriage. And you will have pain in childbirth, which, which I think is talking about way more than, than the physical suffering. It's talking about the, the pain that would be introduced into mankind's most intimate and important form of community, the family. There is no tighter form of community on the face of the earth than the family, and we know that there is no place where we are more deeply hurt than the people who are most deeply connected to us. Eve was being told, you will now no longer live in community with your husband, you will live in competition with your husband. Life will seem like a a game of diminishing resources, and you'll have to fight for your own. Instead of each of you living joyfully and humbly for the joy and the good of the other, you will now compete for your own, and your children will go to war with your hearts. And of course, we see that that loss of shalom in our relationship with others spills well beyond the family into our relationship with every other human being. This is the explanation to why people do evil things to other people, why nations go to war, why we are constantly in competition for limited resources when there are plenty of resources for everyone across the face of the earth because we have lost shalom with others. God then explained to Adam that There was a consequence in his relationship to the created order. He said, now the field will produce its goods for you, but it's going to do it through thistles and thorns. The ground will no longer willingly and joyfully yield itself to the hand of its steward. You will lose shalom with all of creation, and as a result, you'll you'll still be able to get the good, but it's going to come through struggle. Creation itself will rise up against you. Because there's a loss of shalom between creation and its steward, mankind. And so we see the existence of of tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and, and famines. It was all born here in the loss of shalom between mankind and the rest of creation. So what I'm saying is there are four key relationships that we see that God created, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the rest of creation. And sin, the great rebellion of mankind against God, broke shalom. As a result, we lost the flourishing of His presence in every area, in every key relationship of life. You want to know why our bodies break down and we get sick? It's right here. You want to know why brother turns against brother? It is right here. You want to know why we run into difficulty and when everything is going well, suddenly things can turn catastrophic? It is right here because the shock waves of that sin bomb are still being felt throughout creation. God is the source of life. And when we broke shalom with God, there was a separation that came in. And we're still suffering the effects. Without him, everything dies. But here's the thing, you guys. We were created for shalom. That's what we were created for. To crave it. To crave the flourishing of life. To crave the fullness of life. To crave the presence of God and the fullness of his blessing in every aspect of our lives. That appetite is within us and you can't turn it off. So those appetites still drive you. But they drive you 
in the wrong direction. Instead of seeking the fullness of life in the presence of God, we now seek the fullness of life in everything but God. We seek the fullness of life not in the Creator, but in the things He created. In our families, in our jobs, in our accomplishments, in our relationships, in our reputations, in our 401ks. And we find, as every generation before us has found, that life cannot be found outside of God. There are many, many people who have won their race and accomplished their goal only to find that it didn't take them where they wanted to go and it didn't give them what they wanted to get. Every day we live, we are trying to repair the damage of the Great Rebellion. It's why some people work hard and other people cheat. It's why some people serve others and others abuse people. We're all driven by the same urge, and that is to be restored to the shalom of God. But we don't know how to get there. So some of us try to do it through obeying the rules, and some of us try to do it through breaking the rules. And we all, in the end, find the emptiness of being separated from God. We are desperate for our roots once again to be planted in the glorious shalom of God. You guys, God's greatest power is not displayed in what he destroys. It is displayed in what he creates and recreates. And that's what he's doing on the cross. Jesus walked into ground zero of our rebellion. Right into the hot spot. The center point of the explosion of our rebellion and of our sin. And he absorbed it all. He became the embodiment of our rebellion against God. He stood as our substitute, dying the death we deserve to die, taking our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. After living the life we should have lived, a life of perfect submission to the Father, he then died the death we deserve to die become the embodiment of our rebellion, absorbing our guilt, our shame, and taking the consequence of our rebellion, God's judgment, and dying in our place. He absorbed the bomb. He stood at ground zero and took the entire blast of judgment for us. But the good news of the gospel is that he didn't stay dead. (laughs) He rose again. And his resurrection wasn't simply his victory over death. It was ours. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a new kind of bomb. It was a life bomb, a resurrection bomb that that sends out shockwaves of life instead of death. And instead of destroying, it restores. And instead of ruining, it recreates. It is more powerful than the sin. Because Jesus entered into that death and defeated it. Entering into the tomb of our death and blowing out the backside. That we might have hope of life. See, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was our victory. It was our invitation to be once again reunited with God. So I want to draw your attention back to our verses. There's one little word in our, in our verses that I want us to focus on. 
So we talked about the power of God, that it is an, an immeasurable force, right? That it is, it, is, it is the power of God that allows him to speak what doesn't exist into existence. To, to speak recreation out of ruin. It is the word that brings life out of death. What exactly is God doing with this incredible power? Did he just exercise it for us? No, he's, the verse tells us that he's exercising it toward us. Toward is an interesting word. It's a preposition. The Greek is ice, and it means movement. It means toward, as in moving toward. It can also be translated into. Now, for us, toward and into are two totally different prepositions. In the Greek, this, this word can be translated either way, toward or into or even through. The idea is that the power is in motion. The power isn't simply a, a static truth. It is something that is moving and is real. It is a power that is present in us and is moving through us as believers in Christ. So listen, Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be progressively enlightened to the greatness of this power. You know what that tells me? It tells me that we chronically underestimate the power of God. And we chronically overestimate the power of people. We continually underestimate the power of God in the resurrection, and we continually underestimate how much more powerful He is than earthly, political, socioeconomic, relational forces. Paul is praying that our eyes will be amazingly opened. That we will once again be in awe of this power. That we will, like Paul, stumble over our words, trying to find a way to express what we are experiencing in and through us. Believer, are you experiencing that kind of power? Or is your faith simply one of confession and habitual behavior? Believer, are you experiencing the movement of the resurrection power of God in your life? Or have you settled for religion? For the repetition of pious behaviors that are empty of reality. Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we might know the surpassing greatness of His power. So how do we see this playing out? How are we supposed to know it, right? What does this mean for us that we are the resurrection people, that we have this incredible power unleashed in our lives? Well, let me explain a little bit what I think this means because I think it's often mis-explained or poorly explained. A lot of people, a lot of times, will, people explain the power of God as God's ability for your desires. So if you want something hard enough, you just need to have enough faith, pray about it, and God will give it to you. As if God were, were simply a, a doting grandfather in the sky waiting for you to come climb up into his lap and be affectionate enough before he unleashes his goodness in your life. That is not the way it works. 
When we talk about the resurrection of power of God, it is not about you achieving your glory. It is not about you achieving your ends. It is not about you becoming the best you in your eyes. It is about you being freed into His glory, not yours. It is about Him recentering you, your life and your desires on His hope, not yours. It is not a power for you to be harnessed for your ends. It is a power that will realign the affections of your heart so that you will chase what is real and desire what is true and love what is truly worth loving. It is the power that will reverse the shockwaves of our rebellion and the damage of what has been destroyed. We are called to be a people of resurrection. Now, the way this plays out in this life, I mean, obviously, we live in this world that is still broken, right? The shockwaves of the original rebellion are around us every day. All you have to do is open up your social media, and you can see the effects of sin, right? People hating people, people trying to climb up on top of other people, robbing other people of their glory, trying to establish their own, trying to proclaim, look how right I am and how wrong they are, trying to throw dirt on others so that they can look less grimy, How do we live in the power of the resurrection in such a broken world? It is helpful to remember that we live in the overlap of the ages, in the already not yet tension of the gospel of the kingdom. The victory has already been won, but the full benefits have not yet been realized. We live after the resurrection. It has already occurred. The victory is already won, but the full realization of that victory is yet to be fulfilled. And as a result, we will taste both the glory and live in the ruin. And there will be times that the shockwaves of destruction will still sweep over us. You know how I know that? Because every one of us still dies. Right? The power of the resurrection is made available. The full benefit of the resurrection is not yet ours. That's still coming. But in this tension of the already not yet uh, of this kingdom, of this place, this is what I think we can experience, first of all, it brings us back into a shalom relationship with God. First and foremost, the resurrection of Christ reestablishes our ability to love God and be loved by God. We were created to live in joyful dependence on His strength and to live in the overflow of His glory, not competing for it. And we now have peace with God because Jesus is our peace. He paid our price and is our introduction back into the holiness of God. Where we can not only have peace with God, but experience the peace of God. Jesus won this for us. A prize that we could never hope to attain for ourselves. Our sin no longer condemns us because He was condemned in our place. Our guilt no longer covers us because He removed it and left it on the cross and now covers us with His righteousness. Our shame no longer compels us to hide from others and from God because we are now covered in His dignity. We are now covered in His acceptance, His love, and His righteousness. And we are invited to come into the presence of God, to the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment. Christ went to the throne of judgment so that we could come to the throne of grace. We need our eyes progressively enlightened to the reality of this invitation. 
that we have the power to enter into the very presence of God. That on our worst day, we are still covered with His best record. And on our best day, we're still desperately in need of His righteousness. And the great grace of God allows us to come into the very presence of the holiness of God. Not to be threatened, not to be belittled, not to try to earn His favor, but to simply rest in what Christ has done for us. To know that we don't work for His acceptance, we live from it. Because Jesus is our righteousness. You have not done anything. Listen to me. You have not done anything that kept Christ in his grave. That means you have done nothing that can keep you away from the love of God. And it leads to joyful submission instead of fearful rebellion. It leads to a trusting relationship instead of us trying to find everything from God. We find it in God. When you get this, it changes the way you relate to God. Second of all, it restores our shalom with ourselves. We are now accepted, not because we prove ourselves, but because He has proved Himself on our behalf. I am not loved because I am lovable, but because He has covered me with His righteousness. No longer do I have to relate with myself, through the carrot and the stick, through, through pride and shame, trying to puff up my best self and hide my worst, which just leads to an outward conformity and an inward gripping of white-knuckling self-control. I can now be transformed by love. I don't have to change myself. I can rest in the love of God, which changes me. I no longer have to earn the favor of God. I can rest in the love of God. We need the eyes of our hearts progressively enlightened to the power of God to change us, to free us. When you get this, it changes the way you relate with yourself. It restores our shalom with our relationship with others. It allows us to see community instead of competition. It allows me to see I don't need to defeat you even if I disagree with you because it's not in my defeating you that I establish my righteousness. It allows me, because I am forgiven, to forgive. And because I am secure, I don't need your approval, nor do I need to fear your rejection. I have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. And that frees me into a radical new way of dealing with others. I don't need to other, attack others when they feel strong or to gloat over them when they are weak because I am not controlled by the dynamics of a limited resource of acceptance. I have the unlimited resource of God's love, acceptance, resurrection. When you get this, you guys, it absolutely changes the way you relate with others. Completely relates with, you don't have to cater to those who agree with you and defame and destroy those who disagree. You don't have to, to try to limit the motion and movement and freedom people with whom you disagree or, or don't like. They're no longer a threat to your security. In your home, in your workplace, on social media, when you get this, it absolutely changes the way you relate to others. And finally, it restores the shalom with creation. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans for the, the revealing of the sons of God. That there will come a day in which all of creation will once again come under the, the authority of the kingdom of heaven and all things will be made right. Today's not that day. 
at least not yet. And creation longs for that day, but we still experience the, the partial expression, the, the victory that allows us to come to God with our pain and with our suffering and with, with the limitations of our body and the brokenness of the world around us and plead with the God of power that he might intercede on our behalf, trusting that our full solution won't come in this life. And our hope is not set on the joy that we can have here. It is set on the full revelation of the kingdom of God when he reestablishes his glory in the world. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I can operate in life. You guys, I'm going to put some reflection questions on the screen, ask you to pray. Allow God to speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that them. But let me pray for us now, and let's just go into a time of reflection. Father, we thank you that even though you are the God of glory, the Father of all that is glorious, the one who was sinned against, the one who was rebelled against, the one that we sought to defame, to rob, to dethrone, In your humility, you did not reject us. In your love, you did not condemn us. Instead, you set about seeking to rescue us. Father, I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the surpassing greatness of your power, that we might not limit who you are and what you can do in our lives, that we may not look at the situations and circumstances around us, that we might not doubt your hand, but instead grow in knowing and experiencing the power that works in us and through us to change us and free us. Lord, do this for your glory. Do this for our good. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.